Please turn with me to the book of James, chapter 4. We're going to switch it up a little bit and be in James for the next two weeks in the morning. As I believe this message is is critical for us to understand and to hear. We're going to focus on verse 8, but I'm going to read verses 4 through 10. Adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace? Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts. You double-minded, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what a sobering text. Many times, Father, your, your people go astray. Father, people who have heard the glorious gospel and perhaps even lived as a Christian for a while. But you tell us here in James that your grace is sufficient. Father, we ask that you would speak to us through this text. That you would cause us to Examine our hearts in our lives. That we would not deceive ourselves. That we would not be those who who turn away and Father, I ask for the Spirit's help. In presenting this truth, 
And we ask for the Spirit's help to apply this to, to each and every person here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the most grievous things we can ever witness is apostasy from the faith. And there are oftentimes those who who seem to be walking with the Lord. They've received the gospel with joy and gladness. And they seem to, to, to live zealously. And they turn away. Now is this a, a contradiction to what we're saying this morning that, that he will hold us fast? It's not a contradiction. He, he will hold his people fast. But there are a lot of pretenders. A lot of people who... Who, who, who believe that they are his people for a time and, and they are not held fast because they don't truly belong to him. And we see this in the parable of the sower. There are three seeds sown. People who, who did not truly know Christ. Some of them, they, they, they heard the word and they rejected it immediately. Others, they, they received the word, but when they, when they recognized that, that this was going to be costly to be a follower of Christ, when persecution arose, they said, I'm done with this. But then there are those who, persecution doesn't even seem to phase them. They, they continue to press forward, but there's this, this seed of, of worldliness that rises up within them, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows until it chokes the life out of them, and, and then they, they turn away from the faith. But, but also, just as, as grievous, there are people who sit in church week by week professing faith in Christ and they never seem to, to backslide. They never, they never turn away from the faith. But they die and stand before the Lord and recognize, I'm not really saved. But what does our Lord say in, in Matthew chapter 7? Many will stand before me in that day saying, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many mighty works in your name? And he will declare to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. This is the person who, who to their deathbed professed to have faith in Christ and they sat in church and they, they did good deeds and they die and recognize that their faith was never real. This is why James is, is cutting in this text. This is why James is speaking so harshly in this text. Adulteresses. This, this, is, this is supposed to have shock value. You are Christians. And he says, adulteresses. Wake up. This is what he's doing here. Adulteresses. You're, you're unfaithful to God. You're friends of the world. And, and then he goes on. What does he say? You need to start opposing Satan, which means you're not doing that. You're, you're opposing God. He goes on to tell them to, to repent. 
He calls them sinners. This is not a word that, that is usually used to speak of believers. But he uses it here in his text. And, and notice his transition. As you read James, he's constantly saying, brothers, brothers. Turns of endearment, brothers. And now we get to adulteresses. Sinners. Double-minded. Why is he doing this? So that we will understand whether or not our, our faith is sincere. We, 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 we basked in the, in, in the doctrine of redemption last Sunday. And it is true that if we are true believers, all of our sins are, are washed away. They are gone. But how do we know if we're truly believers? And so James, throughout this epistle, has been going from sin to sin, showing these believers how this is inconsistent with the Christian faith. You, you can't commit this sin. You can't commit that sin. Like, these people are living in sin. They're indulging in sin. So he gets to this climax where, he, where he's just cutting sharply now. How do we know if we are apostatizing? How do we know if we, if we really don't know Christ? How do we know if, if we are currently in a state of, of backsliding? The entire book of James is, is almost like a test of true faith. Do you live like the world? Or do you live like one who has been redeemed by Christ. So, so James has laid out what true Christianity looks like over and over again. And in the calling out the sins of his reader. And now he reaches the point where he is calling Christians, professing Christians to repentance. If you're living like a, a spiritual adulteress, you better pick your quickly. If you are living in such a way that, that James can refer to you as a sinner and as a double-minded person, this is, this is a warning that you better choose who you will serve right now because something is not right. And, and one of the sad things is that many sit in churches week after week and perhaps even some sitting here maybe backsliding right now and instead of listening to this message of James you will continue to backslide until you die and go to hell and prove yourself to have never been a true Christian and listen James intention here is not to to break the faith not to shatter the faith of of a weak believer but but it is to Test the faith to, to show us that, that you need to take care of this. You need to have certainty here. You need to make sure that you are not actually deceived. And so after he calls us, or his readers, adulteresses, and warns that friendship with the world is, is enmity with God, if you are aligning yourself with the world, you are aligning yourself as God's enemy and he warns, Scripture does not say in vain that God is a jealous God. That that's not an idle threat. 
but he gives more grace. He offers grace even to the backslider. He offers grace to you. But, but what must you do to receive this grace? He says it's for the humble. And, and what does it mean to be humble? It means to submit to God, which means to resist the devil. And now in verse 8, to draw near to God. So really what he's doing here is, is, is this is a call to repentance. He says in verse 8, draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. What does it mean to to draw near to God. Moop, that this language is often used to speak of, of, of man drawing near to God in worship, but it doesn't really fit the context here well since, since he's saying that God will draw near to you and uses the same verb. So really this could be that, that James is saying to repent of our sins and, and seek God. Pursue God. Return to God as a a wayward son returns to his father. Draw near to him. This is an interesting thing. James is writing to believers. And he says, draw near to God. Why is he telling them to draw near to God? These are Christians. Isn't this what Christians do? Obviously, some of his readers are are wayward to some degree. And and we see this by the the sin that he is rebuking. He, He calls them to submit to God. Resist Satan and and seek God. Draw near to him. If you look at how these believers are living, it's quite evident that they're not seeking God. Once again, he says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So so there's a person who, who is drawing near to the world, loving the world, befriending the world in such a way that they are aligning themselves as God's enemy. Now, if you are doing something that is, that is causing you to become the enemy of God, would you define that as seeking God? No. How does James start this chapter off? Where do wars and fights come from among you? I'll tell you what. They don't come from people seeking God. They come from your desires for pleasure that war. They make war in your members. And and you lust and you do not have and you murder and you covet and you cannot obtain so you fight and you war. And we make train wrecks of even churches because we're fighting and warring instead of seeking God. This is the behavior of believers he's addressing. You ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. We're praying to God so that we can spend what he gives us on our pleasures. Does that describe people who are seeking after God? People 
who are drawing near to God. No, that describes people who instead of seeking God are seeking to fulfill their lustful passions. He is commanding his readers to draw near to God. Why? Because they are not doing this. They are believers who are to be seeking after God, and they are not. But here's here's again, there's no neutrality. If you are not seeking after God, who are you seeking after? The devil. And, And if you are seeking after yourself, or whatever other thing, if you're not seeking after God, you are indirectly seeking out the devil, drawing near to him. He's calling believers to, to draw near because that, they're, they're not doing that. And so this is a call to repentance. To do a 180. Stop seeking the world and seek God. And most professing Christians know this. Is there anyone here who does not know that they need to seek God? I mean, if I ask my son, should you He's going to say yes. There's not a believer here who doesn't understand that. It's a very simple truth. But the question is, why then do we not seek him? What is a believer doing to, that, to where he's living neck deep in sin and not seeking after God? Why does, why does the backslider continue backsliding instead of drawing near to God? Why, as a believer, would you pursue the world instead of pursuing God? And let me be clear here, we're not talking about unbelievers. We're not talking about the false convert. There are some who make a profession of faith for a while and then turn away. But this is not who James is talking to here. This is the warning. Don't be that person. But but he's talking to the the actual believer who who for a time indulges himself in sin and, and backslides to some degree. And why does he do this? He knows better. This is the Christian who for a time is living inconsistent with his profession of faith. And and he knows that he is living inconsistently. And he knows he needs to draw near to God in repentance. But he does not do it, at least for some time. The question is, why? Why would we sin against God and instead of seeking Him in repentance, we, we draw farther away? I think there are several reasons why we do this. Number one is that we don't recognize that sin leads to more sin. And we are deceived by this. Sometimes the believer gives into a certain sin instead of killing it, and he doesn't realize that this sin is not going to lead to holiness. It's going to lead to to more sin and perhaps even greater sin. And so let's do a heart dive here. Why would this even as a Christian? We know what sin is. Why would we dive into sin? Why would we say it's only one sin? 
Why would we do that? We know better. Well, there are several reasons that, that James mentions here, and this is a, a bit of a review for us. But, but number one, we, we, we blame our circumstances. We blame people, which is essentially blaming God. And we, and we do this to justify giving in to that one temptation. And in, in James 1.13, it says, Let not one say when he is tempted. In other words, when temptation has arisen, let not anyone say, I am being tempted by God. Why is he saying that? Because people are indirectly blaming God for, the tempt- for their temptation. Adam, it was the woman you gave me. She's directly responsible. God, you're indirectly responsible. And so in the heat of temptation, God, if you, if you wanted me to be out of this situation, you would pull me out of it right now. Well, why would you make me this way, so prone to this sin? Since, since I have a natural disposition to this sin, I'll just indulge in it. And we blame God. We, we use this as a justification for sinning. This person has ridden me so hard that I'm justified in letting them have it now, and I'm going to go off on them. We blame God. But then also we twist Scripture, or we obscure its meaning to justify sins that we want to commit. James deals with this in chapter 2. If you really fulfill the royal law, why is he saying that? He's dealing with the sin of partiality. And he knows that his readers are going to say, the only reason we're being so nice to the rich person is because we are loving our neighbor as ourselves. And James says, nonsense. If you really fulfill the royal law to love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you, if you show partiality, you sin. He understands what they're going to do. Justify sin by trying to find some way to call it obedience to Scripture. Or what else do we do? We obscure the meaning. Something that was so clear before, but now that a temptation has arisen, all of a sudden it's not so clear. I'm not really sure if this is saying what I always thought it did now that the temptation is here. I can't be the only person who has done this. But this is how a believer finds himself entering into sin. Or thirdly, and what I think is common, we use grace as a license to sin. And I know that we all know better than that. And this is what James deals with in chapter 2. He tells his readers that faith without works is dead. And why does he get into what is the context of that? Why is he addressing that? Because he knows that, that as James is pointing out their sins, they are going to tell him, yes, but we're not saved by work. Remember, this is the new covenant. We're now saved by faith. And James says, you're right. But faith without works is dead. But do we not do the same thing? We all know Romans 6, verse 1 and 2, don't we? What shall we say then? Shall we continue on in sin? That grace may abound. I don't even need to finish it, do I? God 
forbid. What shall we say then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? God forbid. But even though we know these verses, we do it anyways, don't we? We are are tempted to sin. And as we are wrestling with this sin, as we are wrestling with this temptation in our mind, what do we do? We know that it would displease God. We know it's wrong. But, but, But we give in. Why do we give in? Because we that we will be forgiven afterwards. This temptation is so strong. I don't feel like it's going to go away until I give in. So I might as well just give in because I know that I'm saved. I know He will forgive me. I know I can confess my sins and He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Dear friends, that is using grace as a license to sin. Let me ask you a question. If you knew that if you clicked on that website one more time, God would kill you and send you to hell immediately, would you do it without resistance? If God, I mean, if you knew that God would, would, would send you to hell immediately if you gossip or slandered one more time, would you do it? But would you do it on purpose with no resistance? If you knew that was the punishment? Of course not. So why do we give in? Because we say to ourselves, God will forgive me afterwards. Let me just get this out of my system and I'll make up with God afterwards. So grace becomes a license to sin. And so we enter in sin, presuming upon the grace of God. Do we not do this? This is such a deceitful thing. And Satan knows every way to make you give in. And your flesh is a master of making excuses. And it knows allowed one little lust to run away with him. And, and, and once that lust took over, he wasn't drawing near to God. He's now making plans to fulfill sin. And so he commits adultery because he lusted. it. And now he committed adultery. He, he, he's waist deep in sin. What does that lead to? He's not drawing near to God. But now I have to find a way to hide my sin because she's pregnant. And so now I'm so given into my sin that I'm going to actually sin in order to hide other sins that I've committed. The man after God's own heart. But this is what sin does. Protects itself. No, 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 no. You can't draw near to God now. You, you, need to, you need to hide this sin. Make it go away. And you, to do that, you can commit another sin. 
dear friends, this is the result. Or perhaps you do recognize the sin that started your backsliding. But what you didn't realize, you would backslide and stop seeking God. You didn't know it would go that far. Friends, if this is you, James is writing to you. And if this, is not, if this is not you today, let this be a warning. Consider this to be a warning that the next time you give into your sinful desires, you, you know not where that one sin will lead. It may seem like a small, harmless sin, but that is the deception of sin. It seems small and harmless. We were just talking about this last week with a few guys. men have given themselves over to pornography. All it is is looking at a video, looking at a picture. That's all it is. And the next thing you fooling your life. And the next thing you know, you, there's no satisfaction with your wife. So perhaps start mistreating her because you're, you're angry at her because she's not what you see in the videos. And maybe because of this lack of satisfaction and this increased drive for, for, for things you see, you actually begin to seek out adulterous relationships. A person who, who year after year after year having indulged in such things. Where, where man, woman, normal fornication no longer satisfies, but, but we need something deeper than that. And so we lead to bestiality and homosexuality and pedophilia and everything else. Because of a failure to mortify that one sin David would have avoided adultery and murder if he had stopped looking at a woman bathing. Did you hear what I said? If he would have turned his eyes away, he would have avoided adultery and murder. Perhaps today we give in just one more time to that sin. And in several months, we are backsliders, no longer seeking God. Such is the slippery slope of sin. And, and perhaps you say, I'm just trying to scare you away from backsliding. I am, dear friends, you, you cannot tame sin. You, you can't tame it. Spurgeon said, by little and by little, as a rule, backsliding leads on to avert apostasy and sin. No, no. So mature servant of the devil as Judas is not produced all at once. Is there Judas in here? Maybe not yet, but is that the route you are on? Understand this. 
That that type of apostate is not produced at once. This is a a process of giving in to sin and giving in to sin and, and drawing away from God, drawing near to the devil. So Spurgeon says, take care, therefore, of backsliding because of what it leads to. If you begin to slip on the side of a mountain of ice, the first slip may not hurt you if you can stop and slide no farther. But alas, you cannot so regulate sin. When your feet begin to slide, the rate of their descent increases and the difficulty of arresting this motion is incessantly becoming greater. It is, a, it is dangerous to backslide in any degree. For we know not what it may lead to. We cannot regulate sin. Even if we could, this in and of itself would be wrong, but the fact is that we cannot. We can't guarantee that our lust won't turn into adultery, and we can't guarantee that our adultery won't turn into murder. I think of a young man I went to school with. This man was not a murderer, but he decided to be a robber. And so what happened? It led to murder. Because he wanted to take something that did not belong to him, he then had to murder someone. It led to murder. He he went there with the intention of committing the sin of theft, and it led to murder. If we are giving in to sin right now, We are sliding down that mountain of ice and we think that we can stop wherever and whenever we want, but that is not how it works. Maybe you're slipping down the mountain a little bit right now. Dear friend, if that is you, you better stop the sliding right now before the momentum builds and you land in a place you would have never imagined. This is why Paul says we must put sin to death. Romans 8.13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's not a vain threat. It's a reality. If you live according to the flesh, if you continue to live that way, it will mean death to you. Dear friends, you are destroying your souls if you are indulging in sin. John Owen said, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin. Or what? Sin will be killing you. Do you understand it as a battle that way? You go to war. <coughs> There's an enemy troop right in front of you. God, I, I can't do it. I can't kill him. I just can't do it. What's going to happen? He's going to kill you. Your sworn enemies. You're going to fight and one of you is going to die. 
If you don't, if you don't kill that, that enemy soldier right in front of you, for sure is going to put a bullet in your head. And this is how it is with sin. That temptation is before you. Recognize you kill that sin or it kills you. There's no other option. This is a warning. Maybe you're not the person James is writing to, but, but, but you could be one sin. Do you recognize that? And do not misunderstand me. I'm not portraying some picture of, of a God who's not sovereign and a God who, who can't hold on to his people. But what I'm doing here is that, that, yes, God does hold on to us, but we have responsibility in this. We, we can't just say, I'm not going to mortify because God is sovereign over everything. He's, resp- he's, he's sovereign, yes. But we are responsible for this. We are responsible for mortifying our sin. And we do it through the power of the Spirit. It's not our own strength. But there must be effort. There must be a fight. And so this is one of the reasons why why some Christians don't draw near to God and need to be told to do so. We we get deceived into thinking that, that giving in to one sin is harmless, but sin leads to sin. And the more we sin, the less we are concerned about drawing near to God, we get caught up in our sin to the point of even sinning to hide sin. But there's another reason why backsliders don't draw near to God. And it's because our, our shame that sin brings tempts us to flee from God. Adam and Eve in the garden. They hear the sound of the Lord walking through the garden. And this was probably once a great sound to him. And they would want to go and meet him. But they sin this time and, and, they, and they have guilt and they have shame and they have fear. So what do they do? They, they try to hide themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. That they know that there's guilt, that there's, there's fear, there, there's shame for what they've done. So, so instead of going to, to God, they, they now try to hide from His presence. And when we sin against God as Christians, we often have this great sense of, of guilt and fear that tempts us to, to hide our God or to flee from God or at least to try to avoid God all of a sudden. I think David felt this, this fear. What does he say? Psalm 51. Cast me not from your presence. I think he's fearful. I've done some pretty bad things. But perhaps I can't draw near to God now. Perhaps God is going to cast me from His presence because of my guilt and my shame and my sin. Perhaps He's going to cast me away. So so He's pleading with God in the psalm of repentance, cast me not from Your presence, O Lord. There's this unworthy feeling. He he knows that He's wrong. This is especially the case when we commit some sin that we know is quite heinous and, and, and or we, or we commit, this, commit sin repeatedly. The same sin over 
and over again, and we are burdened by this in a way that tempts us to avoid drawing near to God. I can remember sins that mastered me. And you said you wouldn't do it again. And you did it again. And sitting there refusing to pray. Why? I can't go to him like this. There's too much shame. I've committed this sin for the hundredth time. I can't go back to him like this. And so you sit there in desperation. What do I do? And this is a dangerous place to be. Because something else happens. We then become tempted to believe that because of our sins, we we can't draw near to God. So not only do we have a, a great sense of shame and guilt for what we've done that makes us want to avoid God, but the devil whispers in our ear during that time. You ever been in that place? totally broken over your sin. You're just sitting there. I don't know what to do. And then Satan begins to whisper in your ear, doesn't he? And what does he say to you? You can't go to God after committing the same sin a thousand times. It doesn't work that way. You told God the last 50 times that you would never do it again. What would he think of you if you went to him and confessed again? I mean, it's bad enough you committed that sin. Are you going to really go and tell God? I mean, he sees all, but, but are you going to really go and talk to him about that? You should be too shameful to even approach him in prayer at this moment. If you try to go to God again to confess that, he's going to cast you out. He's going to strike you down. There's no way that God is going to be patient with you again and just forgive you for what you've done. You are too sinful to seek God. A sinful man like you can't approach a holy God. This is all of the things that the devil whispers into the believer's air after he sins. How dare you pick up a Bible and pray after you've just done that? How dare you? Have you ever felt that way? I'm actually too dirty right now to pray. I'm too dirty to pick up my Bible and read. And so sometimes, instead of running to Christ, we run to the law, don't we? Because I'm so dirty right now that I can't read and pray, I have to run to the law and become a better person for a while, and then I'll be cleaner. Am I the only one who has ever felt that way? I better show God some obedience first before I try to draw near to him. What is Christ for? What was his sacrifice for? Understand this deception of the devil. You've been in sin and instead of drawing near to God, the devil tells you to run to the law now. But you just proved that you can't obey the law. That's why you were sinning. 
but we run to it. And so we are tempted to believe that because of our sins, we cannot draw near to God. It's impossible for us to do. If I draw near to God, He will reject me. And after all of the cutting, James gives this beautiful promise. What is the promise for those who draw near to God? He. He'll cast you out? No. He will draw near to you. Understand the beauty of that. But, but I've been the, the worst sinner. I've been disobedient to my father and, I, and I've ran away. And, and I've committed sin after sin after sin. And James says, draw near to God. And near to you. He's not going to cast you out. He gives more grace. If you are a true believer... Your sins have been paid for, past, present, and future. Recognize that and go before the Lord, believing that His grace is sufficient for you. You can draw near to Him because His grace is sufficient. You can draw near to Him because if you are a true believer, you have been redeemed, which means that you are clean. Your sins are no more. And here's an area where we, where we really have to check our salvation. Check, rather, our theology. I can remember for years the burden of thinking that every time I sinned, I was pretty much an unbeliever again. I've sinned. This means I'm no longer saved. I have to rededicate my life to Christ now. Over and over and over again in this burden of, I've sinned again. This means that I'm, I'm unclean. I don't have the blood of Christ washed, washing away my sins anymore. But this is not biblical theology. If we truly are saved, His blood has washed away those sins. We don't lose our salvation every time we, we sin. Draw near to Him, James says. And He's going to draw near to you. Spurgeon said, It is a wonderful thing that even if you have been a prodigal and have spent your living with harlots, yet if you are a child, you may call Him Father. Did not the prodigal say, Father, I have sinned. Listen to this. There is good pleading in this fact, for you are not unchilded, even by your sin. Consider that. If you have children, your, your, your child does something wrong, does, it, does that make you stop loving them? Does that make you want to cast them aside? Or do you want to bring them near? And discipline them and then comfort them and let them know that this has not changed your, your love for them. If we do this as, as, as sinful men and women, how much more does our Heavenly Father love us and forgive us and want us to draw near to Him and promise that He will return by drawing near to us? 
and the prodigal son. He approaches. Perhaps thinking he would meet an angry father who, who may or may not allow him to be one of his servants. And when he gets there, the father's arms are open wide. And there's joy. There's joy. Listen to me, Christian, who have been backsliding, living in bondage to sin, if you turn back to God. You will die in your sin and give evidence that you were never actually a true Christian. Do you hear me? But if, if you draw near to God, you, you are giving evidence that you truly belong to Him and he will, he will hold you. And when you draw near to Him, He will draw near to you. You, you don't have to continue down the path of sin simply because you're so deep in it that you feel that God would never welcome you back. You don't have to do that. How many have felt that way before? I'm this far into my sin, so I might as well just keep going. There's no hope for me. He says, draw near to me. Draw near to God. And He will draw near to you. Such is His love for His children. When they sin, He says, don't run from me. Seek me. Draw near to me. Calvin said he again reminds us that, 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 that the aid of God will not be wanting to us provided we give place to him. For when he bids us to draw nigh to God that we may, not, that we may know him to be near to us, he intimates we are destitute of his grace because we withdraw from him. You hear that? If you've been backsliding and you're continuing to backslide right now, you don't feel that you have his grace. It's not because he drew away from you. It's not because he casted you out. It's because you are separating yourself from him. Calvin said, in short, James meant no other thing in this passage than that God is never wanting to us except when we alienate ourselves from him. There is sufficient grace for the, for the Christian who humbles himself before the Lord in true repentance by submitting to God, which means resisting the devil and seeking after God. Again, this is a call to repentance. And in the next few verses, James tells us how to draw near to God. And the way we draw near to God is what he describes as a comprehensive repentance that includes our deeds, our motives, and even our emotions. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. There's your deeds. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's your motives. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That is how we draw near to God. And we'll cover these verses next time. But, but let me just conclude by reiterating two things here. If you are a professing Christian who has been living in unrepentant sin, there are only two possibilities. Listen to me. There's only two possibilities. Number one, you truly are a Christian. 
and you are backsliding to some degree. Or number two, you're not really a Christian even though you have made a profession of faith. Those are your two possibilities. And if you are truly a Christian who has been backsliding, if, if that is you, James says, turn away from your sins and draw near to God. Again, listen to the lie that says you are too sinful to turn to Him. What other option do you have? Who, who would you rather turn Listen to this. This is how crazy we are sometimes. And I say this because I've done it. The devil wants us to sin. He tempts us to sin. And we give into that sin. We, we are the one who leave God, in, in a manner of speaking. And we, we, we go to his side and we, we commit sin. And the devil tempts us and says, you can't go back to God now because you're too dirty. Which means our only option is to draw near to the one who tempted us to sin. To draw near to the one who wants us to sin. Those are our only two options. Draw near to God or draw near to Satan. So, so listen to me. When you say to yourself, I've sinned against God. I can't draw near to Him. What you are saying is I now have to go and serve the devil. Do you recognize that? Those are your only two options. Would you rather serve the one who wants you to die in your sins and go to hell? Or would you rather serve the one who, ha- who sent his son to die for you and tells you to, to come back to me? I don't care what you've done. Come back to me. Turn from your sins. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Which one of those should we choose? I think the answer is quite obvious. Draw near to him and you will find his arms open. And so this very day, if that is you, backsliding Christian, you only have two options before you. You can draw near to God no matter what you have done, and He will draw near to you. Or you can draw near to the devil and live for Him by indulging in your sins. And you can work for Him and reap His wages. And if you take that route, You prove that you never were a true believer. But but what about the person who says, I don't think I'm actually saved. I've made a profession of faith, but I don't think that I'm actually saved. This is you, dear friend. You you, You have one choice before you today. Repent and believe or die and go to hell. Those are your options. Those are your options. But His grace is open. Listen, while you are alive, there's hope for you. If you don't know Christ, He welcomes you to to repent and to turn to Him, to to trust in Him. His arms are open wide. The the invitation is there. Trust in Him for salvation today and your, your sins will be washed away. Why would you reject that? And if you do know Christ but have been living in sin, Draw near to Him in repentance. Such is the grace and the mercy of God. He says to the unbeliever, Come to Me, and I will give you rest. He says to the unbeliever, Repent and believe, and you will be saved. 
He says to the unbeliever, you can, you can have your sins washed away. And he even says to the backsliding believer, draw near to me. And my grace is sufficient. I will draw near to you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Father, we know we don't deserve it. And we have all backslidden to some degree at some point in time, Father. And you, we, we know that your grace is sufficient. But we do ask, Father, that if there are believers here today who, who, are, who are living in sin, that you would cause them to see the error of their ways and to draw near to you. Understanding that you give more grace. And Father, if there are, are unbelievers here today who don't know you, we, we do ask that they, would, that they would see the misery of their condition outside of Christ and that they would turn to Christ in faith and repentance this very day. Father, we thank you for setting us free from the bondage and the guilt of sin. And we ask that you, would, that you would help us to live out this reality, that you would help us to mortify our sins, to, to put them to death, that this would be our daily work. Help us not to be fooled into giving in to one more sin, one more time, one little sin. But help us to see all sin as cosmic treason. That there is no small sin and that sin leads to sin, not holiness. In Jesus' name we pray.